Have you ever felt trapped? Have you ever felt like you were exactly where you were supposed to be, and yet it was so hard, you didn't want to be there with anything, with everything you had? Have you ever been in a place where you've seen someone you love be in this cycle of suffering, in this cycle of pain, maybe self-inflicted pain, this cycle of addiction, and they can't overcome? They have momentary success, but then it leads to trapping, defeat. Have you ever been completely empty, exhausted, or defeated? If so, God's word has encouragement for us today. It is this third key to freedom that we find um, in the scriptures in 1 Peter on this Overcome series. We've looked at this key to be, or this call to be. We've looked at this call to cast our cares upon Jesus rather than control. And today we see this call to pray. And in this call to pray, we see this three-part action. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, one of the things that I could not shake in this process was these, these maxims that they gave us at church plant training. Maxims are, you know, almost absolute truth. <laughs> they gave us a top 10 list. A couple of them were kind of exciting. You will see God work. I'm like, oh yeah, I want that one. A couple of them were rather scary. Like, there is no magic bullet. Rather, consistent Wise, hard work will produce ministry fruit. I'm like, I'm not consistent. I don't think I'm that wise. People are polite. Don't believe them. But I like people, God. You will be broken. You were here when I came last year and you got to see my picture of shingles all over my face. I had a physical breaking. But the thing that haunted me the most of the list, the thing that... to to this day is still the one that is the biggest, hardest challenge for me, is this agricultural example they gave. They said, plant behind the plow, prayer is the plow. This culvert, this um, combine, this tractor that comes through and breaks up the soil and you plant behind the soil, prayer is what breaks that through. And I just didn't know if I could pray like I needed to pray. Some of you, some of us, feel that same thing. Can I really pray like I need to pray? Well, today, God gives us how we pray. Let's look at it together. You might want to read along with me. They did that in the first service, and it was awesome. 1 Peter Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing, oh, sorry, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. First call in this call to pray. 
first action we need to do is we need to see clearly. Be alert and of sober mind, it says. We need to understand that there is a physical realm that we live in, that we see every day, but there's also a spiritual realm. There is a natural world and a supernatural world. And if you go throughout the world, if you go to other countries, if you talk to missionaries, you talk to people that live in Indonesia, you talk to people that live in the Muslim culture, you talk to people that live uh, in Africa and other parts of the world, they have no problem with this. They see spiritual oppression, spiritual possession. They see hardships. They see this kind of spiritual suffering all the time. We don't see that very often. I don't know if you've had conversations about the spiritual realm and the the dark powers of the spiritual realm with any neighbors lately. When I have those conversations, people look at me like I've watched one too many Harry Potter movies. They're like, no, that doesn't really happen. Don't you have a more sophisticated faith? But Ephesians 6.12 is very clear. It says we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. There is a realm that we don't see, and when I ask people in the suburbs why they don't see it, they're like, or when, I, when people tell me they don't see it, I ask them, well, tell me about your life. And as they start to describe their life, I picture these old-fashioned wooden tops that use string. Anybody seen those things? You wind the string around the top, and then you throw it, and you hold the string, and you pull it, and it spins. And they're like, well, I get up in the morning, and I'm going to say, good morning, Lord. But instead, it's, good Lord, it's morning. And then I have a kid who runs down the stairs and goes, Mom, there's a project that's due before school. I forgot it, so I need to be there 15 minutes early. Can you please bring me to school early? Oh, my gosh, yeah. And then, you know, you come downstairs, and you find an email on your phone that you probably shouldn't check from your boss that said, that deadline moved up two days. I need you to come in. And so you go, oh, I got to come in. And then after work and after school and after that, you go, okay, we got to fit the kids' activities in, and we should probably have dinner together. I'm not sure who who's going to make dinner, how we're going to fix dinner, who's going to eat dinner, who's even going to be in the house, but, you know, we should do that. And then we want to get into this small group training thing, and we want to, we want to actually be in a small group. Oh, maybe we could go to church. We should find time to pray. We should go on a date. And then we hit the bed. Some of us so wound up from a day of flurried, frenzied activity that we can't even go to sleep. Maybe that's just me. I think some of us experience this all the time. We're very distracted. Very distracted. I think the enemy in the unseen world doesn't need to put actual demonic possession. Sometimes it happens, but doesn't need to do that a lot in America because we've got plenty of distraction. Why give us proof of the enemy when we can just be distracted? Some of us don't fall into those overactivityed, frenzied lives. But instead, some of us are suffering so much and we're not sure what to do with it that we escape. Some of these escaping behaviors, they're, they're really not all that bad. If you're on Facebook, you've probably heard of a game called Candy Crusher. I've been invited to it 62,000 times, I think, in the last three years. No, probably 62 times, though. Um, Minecraft, uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, maybe a whole season of Downton Abbey in three or four days. 
Some of these things, though, go to that second or third or fourth glass of wine. Just to take the edge off, just a little escape. Uh, One of my friends was telling me about her retail therapy where she shops, and she says, well, you know, I go spend 20 or 30 or $40. It's way cheaper than a real therapist, though. Consumption, consumption, consumption. And see, the thing is, with these escaping behaviors, some of those things are not in themselves all that bad. It's just that all of those escaping behaviors can easily slide into addictions and can trap us. Those things can become evil. Overeating or undereating can become an eating disorder. That second or third or fourth glass of wine can become alcoholism. Not to mention things in the realm of lust. Things that are more illegal. Things that are more evil. And we wind up captive to those things. Some of us are trapped because of things we haven't done but have been done to us. Some of us are trapped because of things that we do to ourselves. Are you trapped today? Is something holding you captive? Something that really started out innocent, but now you're not sure if you can go a day without it. We have to see clearly that there is a spiritual battle that goes on as well as the physical. We can't miss this. God made it super clear to me about this realm of captivity and the spiritual realm when I went on a mission trip in 2009. Through that very hard, trapping, feeling time where I felt very close to God but very exhausted, very unsure of him, very um, captive, I had a sense that God was saying, stay, I've got this, stay, I've got this. Other people around Faith Covenant had this sense of stay, I got this too. And they endured and they would come up to me in some of these hard times and some of these transitions and they would say, keep the faith, Rob. I know that God is up to something. I know that he is working right now. I can see our people having a greater dependence on God's spirit. God is doing something in the midst of this. You hang on, we'll hang on, it'll be okay. God's gonna work. March of 2009, I go with some friends on an Agua Viva mission trip. I get a hernia. It's day six. I'm on the side of a mountain. I'm scraping with one of those little four-inch trowel shovels and getting about a handful of dirt. I could have just bent over and used my hand, except it would have hurt too much to bend over. And I'm on the side of the hill. I'm overlooking the 80 homes, and I'm like, God, what does it mean for these people to have hope, for these people to not be captive? Talk about being trapped. Most of them will never leave this village, let alone leave this region, let alone leave this country. What does it mean for these people to have freedom? And I very clearly felt God saying, Rob, here, it's so clear. There's Jesus or nothing. There are no other options. In your complicated, complex lives in the suburbs, there are endless options to escape in, to put your hope in. There's jobs, there's spouses, there's bigger houses, there's kids, there's education, there's activities, there's all these kind of media things, there's all kinds of things to put our little hope in but not Jesus. And some, 
by putting their hope in those things, have literally become captive to them. They are trapped in those things. I can't possibly leave my job because I make so much money that I could never find a job that would get me that lifestyle anywhere else, so I've got to stay even though I hate it. We're, we're upside down in our payments on our house. We can't possibly move because we'll never be able to. We shouldn't probably not have gotten this big of a house. We feel trapped. Trust me, no judgment, just reality. Very much felt God saying that. Some, by no fault of their own, like I said, have put themselves in prison because of an addictive situation. And even if they could pray, they wouldn't really know how. It would be like trying to navigate a labyrinth without a map. We've got to see clearly if we're going to make this call to prayer. But we can't stop just at seeing clearly. See, God hit me over the head after this and said, this call to church planting, this is a spiritual thing. Who are you doubting? Your ability or mine? That was a tough, tough conversation with God. I did most of the listening because I was doubting him in the midst of doubting me. We've got to understand there's a spiritual realm. We've got to understand where the power comes from. In order for us to understand where the power comes from, we've got to do this second call to prayer. The second action in this call to prayer is called studying carefully. It says in the word in 1 Peter, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is a spiritual realm and there are dark forces that are at work and John 10.10 says it super clearly. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose, Jesus says, is to give life, abundant life, full life, overflowing life, life that has joy, life that has happiness, life that has a blessedness, life that has a sense of intimacy and dependency on God all the time. We've got two different options here. One commentary describes this enemy or adversary as one who is actively and continually hostile towards someone. Think about that. If you believe in Jesus, you have an enemy. We have an enemy who is continuously and actively hostile towards us. Wants to steal and kill and destroy. We have to know our opposition. So in junior high ministry, I used to say it like this. Prowls around like a roaring lion. Jaws. Claws, sharp teeth, sharp fangs, sharp claws, watch out. And some people would go, ha, ha, ha. Well, imagine a schoolyard. Because when we talk about this opposition, people tend to go to three extremes. So imagine a schoolyard. Really fancy playground, nice school, hundreds of kids, closed-in fence. All the kids, some of the kids are playing in the schoolyard, and all of a sudden, in the corner of the fence is a lion, escaped from the zoo, fresh out of the, out of the wild. You know, it just happened to be going by uh, over to the Minnesota Zoo, and they had a mishap, and so now it's in the schoolyard. Some of those children want to say, there's no lion, let's just play. Let's just, you know, I don't see a lion. If you are a responsible, caring adult, you know, one that could be left alone with children, wouldn't you go up to those kids and say, do you see it? Do you see the lion? No, you have to be careful. There's a lion in the corner. No, I don't see it. No, really, look, there is. 
In the same way, there are some people that just want to ignore the idea that Satan is real. That's not the only extreme, though. We've got other kids who don't, instead of not seeing the presence of the lion, they don't understand the power of the lion. They want to go pet the lion. They think it's harmless. They want to come up and look at those teeth and check out those claws and just see how long they are and go cuddle with that thing. If you were a responsible adult, wouldn't you run after those children and say, don't you understand a lion? What it wants to do to its prey? No, don't do that. We have some people who totally underestimate the power of Satan. And finally, there would be kids that would be plastered against the side of the school as far away from the line as they could go, paralyzed with fear. Inches from the door, never wanting to venture out to that playground because just in case, that line might move. The line's wandering over in the corner, mind you. But they are paralyzed with fear. They are totally overestimating the power of the lion. And one, the last extreme is when we overestimate the power of Satan. We need to be alert. We need to be sober and balanced. We need to not fall into these extremes of how we view the opposition and where that power comes from. We need to realize whose power it is. This isn't about self-help books. Even though they continually sell really well year after year, it's like, oh, there's darkness. Are you suffering? Do you have hardship? Well, you just, you know, you just think more positive. You just do this. No, it's God's power, not our power. And that goes into this third idea or this third action in this call to prayer. And it is to stand rightly. Resist him, verse 9 says, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Yes, we need to have a healthy awareness of the enemy. Not fall into those extremes of Satan. But we need to be impressed with God. We need to understand that God is the uncreated one. God is the infinite one. God is good. We don't want to get into this good versus evil thing like it's God versus Satan and we're not sure who's going to win. No, Satan is a limited, created being. Just like God's angels are limited, created beings. They're the ones who battle in the unseen realm. God has all the power. God has it. So we want to stand firm and stand rightly in what it means to access God's power. Ephesians 6 says it parallel to this. 6.13, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. Not ours. God's. Put on every piece of God's armor so that we can be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after we do battle, after the battle, we will stand firm. We put on God's armor, we access God's power, then we'll stand firm. We stand right, it says standing firm in the faith, which is not a vague religious reference. Standing firm in the faith means we understand God's power, but we also understand our trust and our dependence in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because a faith is a trust or a belief 
in something or someone. We want to put our faith in Jesus, the one who conquered death and sin and Satan. He's the one who overcame, and as we trust in him, we overcome, not in our own strength. See, when we're suffering, some of us want to give up. In those months in 2008 that were really hard here, there were some people that said, I just can't do it. I got to give up. They missed the overcoming. There are some people that just wanted to give in. Well, people seem to be fighting this way, so I'm going to fight this way. I'm not going to trust God. They missed overcoming. Some people stood in their own strength and said, I just need to work harder. And they missed the overcoming. But when we stand firm in God's power and when we trust in who Jesus is, then, then we see that victory is possible. Then we see the word says that after the battle, we'll still be standing. So I tried to figure out, what does this look like? How do, we, how do we picture this? Sure, the schoolyard might work, but some of the greatest writers in history, or at least in the last century, have given us vivid images of this unseen battle and this realm that goes beyond us. And one of those is this guy named Ronald Tolkien. You might know him as J.R.R. Tolkien, where he and C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, I think, and a couple other guys sat around a pub eat, drink, talked about life, but then talked about the the literature that they were writing and working on. And out of those times, this story birthed called Lord of the Rings. And in Lord of the Rings, the two towers, we see the wizard Gandalf, and he appears before King Théoden. He is the king over this realm that's kind of the linchpin between darkness and good. And so he comes in and the king's health is failing. And some people believe it's just because he's sick. They only see the physical. Some people believe it's because he's literally being poisoned by his evil advisor. But Gandalf knows there's something more going on, and he knows what power he needs to access. You may not see spiritual possession or oppression like that in your life or in the lives of people around you. But there are dark forces that are at work. There are people who are trapped. There are people who are suffering and who are in addictions and who don't feel like they can get out. And just like Theoden, they're, not, they're, they're helpless in the midst of that. And Gandalf knew that he couldn't go at it by his power, just himself. But see, Gandalf had become not just a gray wizard, he'd become a white wizard because he had, down, he had fought death and he'd come back from the grave. Sound familiar? See, this writer is trying to give us a little allegory, a little story, a little picture of what it's like to be released from this prison, these spiritual oppressions that, a fate, that we face, and how to deal with that. And we know we have to go to the power of Jesus, the one who defeated death and Satan and sin. And we can overcome in his power. And then we wonder why we have suffering Well, I love how clearly and concisely Rick and Tim Drank of Discovery Ministry and Essentials for Spiritual Growth say it. They say, expect distractions, temptations, and attacks. You are in a spiritual battle for control of what you think, say, and do. Are you trapped? Are you suffering and wondering, if God loved me, why would I suffer? Christians throughout history go through suffering. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians 10 years before this, or yeah, no, sorry, Paul wrote to Rome 10 years before this and said, since we are heirs to God and children with Jesus, together with him we're heirs of God's glory. But if we're heirs of his glory, we will share in his suffering. He says to the Corinthians, through suffering our bodies share in the death of Jesus so that they can share in the life of Jesus. Luke and Matthew say, God blesses you when you go through persecution or when people mock you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. If you go through persecution, it's a conclusion that if you follow me, you are closer with me. See, God uses suffering all the time to draw us closer to him. Had I not gone through the things that I went through in 2008, had I not been through that place of feeling trapped, I wouldn't understand what it meant to truly rely on God's power to see victory, not only in my life, but now in the life of people I pastor. See, when we're suffering, we want to give up. When we're suffering, we want to give in. And when we're suffering, we want to go to our own strength. And we won't experience freedom unless we pray to the God who gives us that freedom. We pray in the name of Jesus because he's the one who conquered sin and death and Satan. And when he moves, we overcome. If you are trapped, if you're in a cycle of defeat, of emptiness, if you wonder, can my marriage get any better? If you wonder, can my kids ever behave? If you wonder, can I ever figure out what God wants for me? Can I ever experience the kind of freedom that I want to experience that I see from these, these people that stand up in front or that, that I read the word from? You can. It's in Jesus. We got to pray in the right way. So let's pray. Oh God, you have given us a clear message here on how to pray. To see clearly that there is a supernatural realm, that there is an evil one that attacks us. But yet, God, you tell us to know the opposition carefully, but not overestimate or underestimate or deny it. God, have a healthy awareness of Satan, but God, we want to be impressed with you. We want to trust in Jesus, God, and who he is and what he's done. We want to stand rightly in that, that trust, that dependence, that faith, God, because when we do, that's when we see overcoming happening. Give us this call, God, to pray and ask you to release us and trust that you will by your power, not us, for your glory and not ours. Amen.